Hey everyone, today's guest is Peter Farm. Peter is guest number six in my Community Leaders podcast series. Peter is a human rights specialist lawyer and the principal lawyer at Mart's Method, the only non-government funded human rights law firm in Australia. Interesting. Peter also serves as the Australian Director of Children's Health Defence. Peter has a background in human rights focused civil litigation in both the private and government sectors, having worked on large scale cases in Australia's highest courts. Peter's goal is to defend and advocate for the inherent dignity and rights every man and woman holds by virtue of their humanity. I'm really excited about today. I've got a lot of questions. I'm thrilled to have you on. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Vic. Good to be here, man. Thank yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you took the time. I know you're a busy man. Um, so I'm just going to start out real quick. Um, as we said off camera, um, I've got a lot of questions for you. So let's get the ball rolling with a, what I what would appear on the surface to be an easy question. But then I realized that I couldn't actually answer that question myself. So I thought I'd ask the expert. Human rights, everyone talks about them, but very few people, including me, can define what they are. So multi-pronged question to start with, just attack it however you like. Um, is there a universal definition of human rights? What is your personal interpretation of human rights and or your ideal of human rights? And are they culturally bound? Can they in fact be universal? And indeed, should they be? So I gave you a lot there. You start wherever. The closest thing to a universal definition, um, which is a distillation of the various international human rights treaties and covenants is probably, and I'm putting a little bit of my own spin on it because I, I just have to do that. Yeah. The rights and dignity inherent to our humanity. So by virtue of being a human being, the rights that are inherent to that humanity. And I say inherent because some people fall into the trap of thinking of human rights as something that is external to us meaning that it's something that can be taken away or something that can be uh, mitigated or diluted in a legitimate way. I don't have that perspective. This is the part that's my spin on it. Okay. My perspective, and I'll explain where it comes from, is that they are inherent to our humanity. By virtue of being a human being, there are particular rights that we have. Now, the, the reason why it's a confusing question is because, yes, everybody disagrees about what human rights are, and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is that the way that our modern society and societies internationally have enshrined human rights is in a way that is not really consistent with how human beings have thought about what a human being is and what a human right is for thousands of years. Um, currently, we have the United Nations and the various globalist bodies who um, with each nation state in agreement, most nation states in agreement have enshrined various rights in various treaties and covenants, like the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, which is like a statement of intent. And then there are several more specific treaties and covenants that Australia, for example, has agreed to uphold, such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. That's probably the main one, which, for example, enshrines things like freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, the right not to be forced into medical or scientific experimentation and a bunch of other rights. Um, but the reason why there's confusion is because baked into those treaties and covenants are various exceptions, situations where nation states who are parties to those treaties and covenants can deflect from 
um, derogate from their obligations under the treaties and covenants. And these are situations like public health emergencies or um, situations that threaten the life of the nation. Um, problem being, we have experienced over the past few years that there's a lot of disagreement about what actually constitutes a public health emergency. And if a document like the ICCPR simply says, in the case of a public health emergency, a nation state can derogate from its obligations under this treaty, which is not exactly what it says, but it's, you know, it's a little stricter than that, but that's the way that it was applied. Then you're going to have disagreement about whether a treaty should apply and you're going to have less efficacy in enforceability of those rights. You look like you want to ask me something. Do you yes, want to ask me something? I, I was sorry. <laughs> I didn't you right. didn't want to interrupt, but um, I just wanted to ask about the um, the exemption for public health emergency. Was that something that was um, written uh, in the original Declaration of Human Rights, or is this something that emerged uh, in a later amendment or perhaps in conspiratorially in more recent years? Um, the exceptions were written into the ICCPR, for example, which is the one I was referring to from the start. Yeah. Um, but they're much stricter than than the way that they've actually been applied. So to um, part one, article two of the ICCPR says that in a situation of uh, which threatens the life of a nation, then a nation can derogate from its obligations under the treaty to the extent strictly necessary and as required by the exigencies of the situation, meaning basically the, the life of the nation is at threat. And, and even in that instance, only to the extent very strictly necessary and particular to the, the, the circumstances themselves can a nation derogate from their obligations. And they're supposed to, when they do that, inform all of the other nation states that, hey, we're gonna derogate from our obligation. Here's why, what do you think? So there's there are checks and balances built into it that just were completely ignored right. uh, over the past few years. And um, who gets to decide if the um, if they can be suspended? Is it just up to the leaders of the individual nation states, or is there uh, an overarching like power that yeah. says yes, no, or it can only be done under these circumstances? Yeah, international law essentially operates on covenant that's why they're called covenants um it's it's a lot of it comes down to the integrity and word of the nation state and how that then is the idea is that if a nation doesn't follow through with its with its promise to the international community that will damage the credibility of that nation state and there will be sort of uh, explicit and implicit geopolitical consequences um, other nation states who care about human rights might not want to trade with that nation anymore because that nation is guilty of um, illegal occupation or genocide or war crimes or whatever. But the problem is that every nation state around the world, as tends to happen with uh, government in the form that that um, has taken hold internationally, is breaching human rights all the time. So there isn't really any government who can accuse another government of breaching human rights when they've probably breached the same right and um, they wouldn't want to do it anyway. And in terms of actual enforceability, yes, a nation state can take another nation state to the International Court of Justice, for example, and prosecute breaches of human rights in that forum. But again, um, it would be difficult to find a nation state who could do that 
who weren't themselves guilty of various human rights breaches. Um, and therefore, that's a massive reason for why nation that doesn't happen very often it does happen. Um, there was one where Japan, you know, in a really sort of random example, but Japan got taken to the International Court of Justice for whaling and um, and lost. And there was um, various remedies that were put in place to try to curb the amount of whaling um, that Japan was doing because, you know, they uh, eat a lot of whale and, and, and fish a lot of whale. Um, but it's like little niche issues like that will get there. But the actual um, overarching issues of our time haven't really been canvassed in those forums. Um, so because of the sovereignty of each nation state as well, um, it's difficult for one nation to really take action in that forum in a way that will actually cause another nation state to stop what they're doing. There has to be a level of cooperation and integrity that's just not there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you've got countries like the United States that aren't even signatories to the ICC. Is that right? Yeah, the United States is a funny one. Um, they are signatories to the. They were one of the main countries who instigated the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, but yeah. they they refrain from signing all of the optional protocols to most of the treaties and covenants, including the ICCPR. So they're not against the ICCPR; they're a part of it, but they haven't signed the additional optional protocols that would force them to. I mean, no, I wouldn't force them, but. Technically, it would obligate them to put into practice a lot of what the ICCPR includes. That doesn't make much of a difference, to be honest. Um, it hasn't made much of a difference in Australia, um, for example, that we are signatories to those treaties and covenants, because what really matters is whether a nation actually enshrines the rights from those treaties and covenants into their domestic law. That's when it actually right. is enforceable by yeah. individuals. Um, which Australia hasn't done much of. US has actually done a better job of that than us, mostly because of their constitution, yeah, um, right. which enshrines various rights that we, we don't have a constitution that's designed to enshrine human rights. We have a constitution that's essentially a governance document designed to make the corporation run well. Um, it's the kind of constitution you would make in a, a country that started essentially as a, as a penal colony with prison officers and convicts and that dynamic has continued to play out in Australian society whereas the US started as a bunch of breakaway rebels from a system that they saw as um, oppressive so the founding fathers there were a little bit more human rights minded how can we make sure that the government never becomes too corrupt and corrosive well we better enshrine some fundamental principles into our constitution like freedom of speech for example the right to bear arms, all things that are designed to ensure that the government can never become too um, oppressive. Not that I'm saying the US is a perfect society by any means, um, but they have some more explicit rights protections than we do in Australia. Yeah, I'm not sure. In doing research for today, I did read an article. It may have been something you've written, um, but it was talking about the fact that um, Australia has a constitution, but not a bill of rights. And then it mentioned something that I didn't quite understand um, because America has a constitution and a bill of rights. And therefore the, the article was saying that the United States is much more focused on personal liberty and in, United, in Australia, sorry, and the courts decide 
Am, am I getting that completely wrong? It, it seems no, like it's right. enforceable by the court, but not by the person or something along those lines. No, you're not wrong at all. Yeah, we don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia. There's a, a whole argument we could have about whether a Bill of Rights would actually make a difference. New Zealand has a Bill of Rights. Um, you know, during COVID-19, for example, they weren't exactly um, a beacon of individual liberty and freedom. <laughs> Um, in fact, they were probably more oppressive than Australia. So there's an argument there. Leave that aside. Um, and I should say for completeness, there is an argument that Australia is still subject to the UK Bill of Rights from the 1600s. That's a whole topic, which I just, I'll just leave to the side. Um, the general accepted position uh, is that we don't have a Bill of Rights. That's what a court would say. Um, what rights protections do we actually have? The way that our governance structure is designed and this is what you're alluding to with the judges, is that um, the judiciary, yes, has a very, very important role in ensuring that the government never does anything unlawful or illegal or, um, or, or that is in breach of people's fundamental rights and freedoms. The separation of powers is supposed to ensure that um, the government can't become too corrupt because the courts are constantly assessing the decisions of government independently um i have raised before that i think there's a problem there because in australia the judges are still appointed by the government so that's not really a very effective level of independence and the separation of powers i think can be called into question on that basis and i've seen that play out in some of the cases i've been involved in over the past few years um um there, there's something in australia called the principle of legality which is a rule of statutory construction, meaning a rule that applies to or is supposed to guide you when you're interpreting a statute as a judge. And it basically says that um, a judge, in any instance where they're interpreting what a statute means, they shouldn't interpret the statute to limit fundamental rights and freedoms. They should assume that the statute is not supposed to limit fundamental rights and freedoms when they're interpreting it so it's a bit of a weird rights protection but because we don't have many rights protections in australia you kind of take what you can get and the principle of legality is one of the only things we have um unfortunately there's an exception to the principle of legality which is if the whole purpose of the statute is to limit fundamental rights and freedoms then it doesn't apply and that argument was made in a really famous case kassam has versus hazard in 2021 which was one of the biggest vaccine mandate cases um, which I wasn't involved in, but um, uh, um, in that case, they made the argument about the principle of legality and the judge, um, uh, Justice Robert Beach Jones in the Supreme Court in New South Wales said, yeah, but the purpose of the Public Health Act is to police people and make sure that people, um, uh, to limit people's, specifically to limit people's ability to have freedom of movement in the case of a public health emergency. Therefore, the purpose of the act is to limit people's fundamental rights and freedoms so the principle of legality doesn't apply. So you can see that, and this is the thing with the, the legal system that we operate in that frustrates me so much. You can almost bend anything. It's very discretionary, it's very interpretive, and you can almost bend anything to say anything um, if, you, if you try hard enough. And that's where not to go on too much of a tangent, but to go back to your original question, what are human rights? The way that our society enshrines and actualizes human rights 
is not in alignment with what I would say human rights actually are, just as the way that our society um, defines law is not actually how I would define law. Uh, you asked me, you know, what's my interpretation? The word law comes from a Latin word, root word, that means immutable truth. And it's the case that most human societies before ours considered that there was such thing as immutable truth, truth that exists. We may have different perspectives and interpretations of that truth, but truth fundamentally exists. There is a foundation of truth. There are laws that govern our existence here. There are laws that we can observe in nature, which repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. That's what law is. Um, the, the reason why my firm is called Ma'at's Method is because mm. Ma'at is the ancient Egyptian deity representing truth and justice. Now, that's that's an oversimplification because in our tradition, we say that truth and justice are actually the same thing. Truth is justice. Truth is the line that permeates our existence here. It's in everything, and it cannot be derogated from it cannot be taken away it can't be diluted it can be distorted um, people can give false um, interpretations of that truth um, intentionally or unintentionally but it exists anyway you know if i see a car and you think it's a red car and i think it's a blue car there's still a car there you know mm. there's still there's still truth even if we have different perspectives about it and law traditionally is supposed to be the um, elucidation and maintenance of that truth for the human species the, if necessary the, the defending of that truth which is necessary in a society like ours which is quite divorced from truth and is actively um, in my opinion trying to implement philosophies and ideologies which are postmodern and which convince us that there is no such thing as truth um, and and the, the consequence of that is a lack of foundation and um, the ability for people to be easily blown in whichever way the wind is blowing, as opposed to returning to some kind of anchor, which might help them to make more independent, critical decisions about things that arise. Hmm. Anyway, I've gone off a bit of a tangent, so I'll let you jump no, in. No, no, that, that's perfect. Um, do you think that traditionally that anchor um, was perhaps um, the, the mainstream religions and now, well, the way you were describing it just then in terms of like the truth and the way, um, it sounds it's almost like a little bit um, like the the uh, the higher truth for people in the past was um, religion and our societies are increasingly becoming more and more scientific focused atheist for good or for bad but maybe people don't have that grounding um, in something that is higher than the everyday or greater than the everyday yeah, I think that religion is a, a framework through which we can interpret existence here and truth. Um, and religion is, yeah, the most recent example of widespread societal frameworking for that interpretation. And I do think um, religion has a lot of benefits in that sense. Um, religion is is a relatively, in the I think the sense that you're referring to it, a relatively modern phenomenon, yeah. <laughs> um, because and it depends how you define religion, but well, I there think were... like it's greater. It's the view that there is something greater than just myself, and I think sometimes religion should and, and have a, a long-term perspective as opposed to short-termism. Um, 
yeah yeah it's a very 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 recent phenomenon for a human being to live in such a way that we believe we are purely physical beings who don't have any connection to other um, people or the world around us or some form of um supernatural and even that term is such a you know we didn't used to think of things that um weren't scientifically observable as supernatural these things were a part of our everyday life and existence a lot of my framework personally comes from ancient egyptian um society and that's because when i started to really feel the pain of this framework not making sense for me and not being aligned with who I was and what I thought was important one of the things that I did was to look at what my ancestors were saying and when I did that I realized that what my ancestors were saying was very similar to what everybody else's ancestors were saying if you go back far enough um, living on this land in Australia um, I spend a lot of time trying to learn as much as I can from um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who I now refer to as original people um, because they have a very pure tether and connection to a way of living that was um, very aligned with natural law and very aligned with the laws of nature. The reason I refer back to nature is because it's one of the easiest ways for me to observe and experience the truth that exists in everything. If I want to learn about the patterns that govern our existence here, um, connecting with nature is one of the ways that I can reliably do that. Mm. Whereas if I go to a library and start reading books, I, which I do as well, um, it's not as reliable because you're getting a filtered version of truth through somebody else's perspective. But nature doesn't lie, it just is. And um, it's very, I, I have found it very valuable to spend time with elders here on this land because they're still very connected to the kinds of frameworks that I'm talking about. But I've also studied uh, Celtic culture, Gaelic culture, um, indigenous cultures from all around the world and found that the stories are the same. The characters have different names, but the stories are the same and the messages in the stories are the same. So it's the same truth. So there was hundreds of thousands of years in human history where human beings all around the world were interpreting existence in a way that was quite aligned and which led to societies um, existing in many cases. And I'm, I'm not deifying those societies because some people say, oh, you're looking at them with rose-tinted glasses. I'm not saying everything was perfect, but they were living in a way that was, in my opinion, much more aligned with who we are. And therefore, we're living in a way that um, was more human and which led to more fulfilling lives. Um I can go down that road if you want, but I'll just stop in case I'm gone on a tangent. No, that that was beautiful. Um, the one thing that I just wanted to to point out there for what you were saying is, yeah, we we need to remember that these uh, these cultures had no um, contact with each other. So the, these these myths, well, uh, um, they 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 were purely organic, and yet they were all common. Yeah, I mean. Um... There's some, uh, look, I don't know if they have contacts with each other or not, because I've, I've come across some, I mean, there are, there are hieroglyphics on the central coast in Australia that date back 
many thousands of years. Um, and I've many elders have said to me before in various contexts that there was a lot more contact with each other than we think. But I don't know much about that other than what I've been told. And I I I I think the point you're making is valid, which is they they all came certainly many of them probably didn't have contact with each other let's say and they were coming to similar um I, I don't want to say conclusions because it wasn't really about conclusions but they were using similar ceremonies rituals and stories to explain like phenomena mm. and um i mean you you um one of the things that i there's a progression over time of a lot of these stories as well. And it, we we're talking about religion. Um, this is, you know, I grew up as a, as a Christian, right? So, so, and I think that it's a beautiful religion with a lot of value that it can give to people. I am not anti-Christian. I still am a, a, technically a Christian, but I've just, um, what I do now is I look at different religions, different spiritual frameworks, and I take various things from all of them. And part of that is based on my, understanding that a lot of what they're saying is the same it's just delivered in different ways mm. bring this up because i'm about to say something that that sometimes people get offended by which is the, the stories that i'm talking about exist in all of the religions and all of the spiritual frameworks the 10 commandments in christianity are a distillation of the 42 laws of ma'at um, there are many many examples of that in ancient egypt spirituality there's also a trinity um, they're not called you know god son and holy spirit but there are three deities in ancient egypt um horus ma'at and osiris who form a trinity and who have the same roles as the people in the stories in the bible um, in the sense that there is a a supreme deity a human um, form of that deity and a spirit that runs through both the idea that we are fragments of a universal consciousness um, is a very profound idea in Hinduism as well. In Hinduism, yeah. um, you know, they the, the, the Hindu, I'm not an expert on Hinduism, but I do really like Hinduism as a framework. I think that it's very valuable and has a lot of, um, it was one of the religions that actually helped me to understand myself more in some ways. And I have a really good friend who is a Hindu and who was, spent a lot of time telling me a lot about Hindu philosophy. And one of the things that struck me was, oh, this is very similar to this idea that we are individualized fragments of some form of collective divine entity. Um, in Christianity, you know, we are made in the image of God. It's the same idea. Um, maybe a little bit less of an external sort of superior God, um, but it's still a, a perspective on the same truth. Um I feel like I can't remember why I'm saying this, um, but I had I'm just a, making a question um, because I um, I found the 42 um, laws. Um, I actually came across them a few years back on um, a podcast called uh, This Jungian Life, <clears throat> which is probably oh, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me a bit a bit strange to come across it there. But Jung was actually a fan of this. Um, I actually found them quite beautiful and quite moving when I read them. And one of the things that I noticed, and it kind of ties back into what you were saying, um, is I feel that they definitely did inform things like the Ten Commandments, but also uh, the, the three main religions. But I noticed that there was a, a removal of 
um, a focus on nature, animals and children, because mm -hmm. the Mart method uh, really was speaking about the whole of, of life and existence and not impacting on the environment and animals and respecting children um, in a much more profound way than I see uh, in the Ten Commandments. And I also wrote when you were speaking before that there does seem to be an effort, I'm not sure if it's deliberate or it's just the way that the modern life is, to, to disconnect people from nature, from uh, the production of food, uh, traditional methods of food production and people growing and producing their own food, and from also making tangible things. Um, I'm not one to talk because obviously I'm working in the digital realm myself, but as I'm getting older, I feel something, or perhaps I'm just getting a little bit more spiritual. Um, I feel that there was a few years back that there was something missing from my life. And it wasn't until I started to go wandering in nature and started to garden, perhaps I am just getting old, <laughs> um, but okay. also started uh, with my brothers who work in manual labor, started to actually build physical things. As strange as it sounds, those things, that connection with nature, building things with my hands made me feel better. Yeah. It, it, it felt like there was something missing and that was part of what I found. And even just growing herbs, I can't grow much in a small apartment, but even just the process of growing herbs and being able to add that to my food, there is something rewarding in that. And I feel like those bonds and those connections are being broken. And my question, I guess, is whether you think that those bonds are deliberately being broken and does it arc back to this removal of the, the nature and the environment and animals from spirituality in the past? Um, one, yeah, no, great question. Um, I think that one thing I'll just say at the beginning is that that feeling that you're talking about of disconnection from nature then being, I guess, medicated through more experience with nature is something that almost everybody can relate to. And you're talking about a feeling. Feeling is something that ties us together. You can't really argue about feeling. It's not a cognitive intellectual thing. It's just something that happens. Um, and everybody can relate to how much better they feel when they go out in nature. Maybe they go to the beach. Maybe they walk in the forest, like you said. Maybe they go for a swim. And the reason I bring that up is because this is one of the entry points that I use if I'm trying to help somebody to see something from a slightly different perspective. Um, because, yes, we live in a society today that is literally disabling us. Um, you and I right now are sitting down in an unnatural position, which is terrible for our backs. We're looking into a screen, which is damaging our eyes. Um, and it's that's the surface of what's going on. We're supposed to be, yeah, we're supposed to be mobile, um, elastic, strong um, beings in our natural habitat, which is outside, not in these rooms, which is why we feel so much better when we're outside. It's our habitat. This is our, we are custodians of this planet. Um, and we that's a very important relationship for us. There's science about grounding that a lot of people know about now. And you go outside and you're barefoot. Mm. Um, the actual exchange of energy between ourselves and the planet that demonstrably occurs, which reduces inflammation, which uh, um, helps our bodies to detoxify. Um, all of these things are demonstrable. We all kind of know it on an implicit level as well. There's a massive movement today. You know, people talk about people are waking up. It doesn't have to be an explicit 
um, awareness of something that's happening in the world. It can just be, I'm trying to do more gardening. I'm trying to eat healthier. I'm trying to be more conscious about the information I'm consuming. Everybody's doing that now. Everybody has this pull back towards our natural habitat and our natural way of living because we've gone way too far in a particular direction and we're out of balance. And it's a natural process that occurs and has occurred before. And that has to occur in order to kind of get us back to a state of, of more balance. And I'm not saying all technology is bad. Um, technology is a tool that we can use, but we just have to make sure it doesn't use us. And we have to make sure that we don't use it so much that we completely disconnect ourselves from who we actually are. One of the things that um, relates to this, and I, this is a roundabout way to answer your question of, is it intentional? Um, because I think that there's a massive amount of people that can't process that conversation. Um, so there's a, a layer before that that I just want to talk about, which is there's an idea, which you haven't suggested at all, but which is very commonly propagated, which is that we today are living in the most advanced human society that's ever existed. This is the best we've ever had it. We've, we're more advanced, more intelligent. Um, everything's better today than it has ever been. And the idea is that we started down here, we were primitive hunter-gatherers, we were basic, we were fighting against nature, we were fighting each other, and now we've gone on this slow rise towards being civilized. Um, to me, that is an intentional narrative that has been indoctrinated into us in order to assist us to accept the calamity of being cogs in a wheel, producing and producing and producing for the system that we live in. Um, that is not an actual reflection of what our ancestors were actually doing, how they were living. And it doesn't take much digging to discover that. It doesn't take much talking to people who still retain a connection and a memory of that way of life or much of a study of history. You just have to go a little back, back a little further than most people go. Most people go a few thousand years and they're looking at the middle ages and it is pretty bad. It's like the, the plague and the depression and people are living, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about five plus thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, the Paleolithic era. Um, some of the questions that I'm borrowing from a guy um, called Tyson Yunkaporta, who write, wrote a, an amazing book called Sand Talk. Um, he's an Aboriginal man who um, essentially, if I could summarize his work, he talks about walking in two worlds because he's an academic and he, but he still retains a connection to his heritage and his culture and he makes some really good points he says you know if, if paleolithic lifestyles were so basic and so primitive um how did we evolve with trillions of neuro connections in our brain only a fraction of which we actually currently use how did that happen um you know what kind of sophisticated cultural customs and lifestyles would we need to be living in order to um, grow the organ that we have in our heads and our guts and the rest of our bodies, um, which we're only using a fraction of. What kind of nutritionally abundant land would we need to be cultivating and living in communion with? What kind of nutritionally dense food would we need to be eating in order to grow a brain, which is mostly comprised of fat, which would have required a massive amount of nutrition mm. in order to grow to the size that it has, especially in comparison to um, other animals? Um, like the, the narrative of harsh lifestyle and um, oppressive conditions, killing each other, primitive hunter-gatherer cavemen, 
why do we have such soft skin and why did we develop um in the way that we've developed to be so delicate and 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 um vulnerable physically if we were living these brutal caveman lives um i think these are all like really important questions because most of the most of the history that we um are taught in terms of that tribal hunter gatherer perspective comes from a combination of straight out um or let me say the the scientific part first a few bones that have been found around the world that could fit in the back seat of a car mm. and most ancient indigenous cultures around the world didn't just leave their bones they either burned them or they put them at the top of trees um the the bones that we would be finding would be the bones from a rogue or a, or a criminal or somebody who was an exile or someone like that because otherwise we wouldn't find them and that's why we've never found massive amounts of bones from the human bones from the paleolithic era so we're making a lot of assumptions which are colored by i don't want to say prejudice because it's not um I, you know it's not really about that but it's about a justification of the way that we're currently living because it feels better to assume that the way that we're living is the best way that we could possibly live rather mm -hmm. than beginning to explore the idea that oh maybe there's a very different way of living that actually is better for us and that's a um that is an entry point that i think for a lot of people is a good one because most people today are sick and i mean that in a pretty broad sense um and or unhappy and um cognizant of it on some level and if they when they start to try to remedy it themselves they're doing things that our ancestors did like going outside more eating healthier food growing their own food um thinking about what's in their tap water thinking about um what they're actually consuming like what they're watching and mm. how much time they're spending on technology everyone's becoming more and more aware of the aspects of our current society that aren't really serving us but let me just, just because we don't have a lot of time, and I did want to ask you um, about the article that you wrote in 2021. Um, yep, yep. I thought it was an excellent article, um, and it was about um, the legal perspective of mandates and medical intervention. Um, and in the article, you stated that never before have employers been encouraged to implement public health policy. And you asked, what are the future implications of employers facilitating and accepting such dramatic shift in their role in our society? I didn't yep. know that this was actually the first time that um, employers had been um, had implemented medical interventions in the workplace. Um, did you ever think this was going to happen in Australia? Um, and the fact that it has happened this time does that create some sort of legal precedent that it can happen again in the future? Or is this something that exists outside of that precedent? Um, uh, uh, it's a precedent in the sense that for the first time ever, um, employers and especially employers that have nothing to do with health, because there have been some mandatory vaccines in the area of health before. Never I think they have to have the annual flu jab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never, never before a provisionally approved vaccine that has no long-term safety data available on it, although I'm not a fan of all vaccines. But anyway, I'll leave that mm. aside. Um, um, but it sets a precedent because employers played a new role, which is, oh, there's a public health emergency and the government is 
releasing particular advice about that public health emergency and we're going to implement a direction to our employees that they must undergo a medical procedure in order to retain their employment with us that's never happened before and um it does set a precedent in the sense that if there's another public health emergency or perceived public health emergency everyone's going to look to the employers including the government and say well you guys know what to do and this was not easy for businesses and this is what I was trying to say in that article because this was when it was just starting I was like guys you don't want to go down this road yeah. it's going to result in years and years and years of, of cost and effort and energy fighting all the claims from people and um even you don't understand medicine you don't understand epidemiology and virology you can't put yourself in those shoes um but nonetheless most of them did not all of them most of them did um, in terms of an actual legal precedent, the federal court has thus far avoided actually hearing one of those mandate cases or employee termination cases. Um, it's all been in the Fair Work Commission and the Industrial Relations Commission. And speaking for myself, the cases that I tried to elevate from those tribunals into the federal court, because the federal court has the jurisdiction to hear questions of law. Um, novel questions of law if there's like a new legal problem that needs to be solved federal court can hear it tribunals can't do that they're not they're just tribunals they're not courts they look at factual disputes and make judgments based on those facts based on laws that already exist um the federal court refused basically to accept any of the cases that um either myself or some or a few other lawyers tried to bring saying hey there's a novel question of law here which is can employers mandate medical procedures as a condition of employment for their staff is that compliant with the work health and safety act is that compliant with um or the various work health and safety acts across the, the country which are all very similar um, um is a control measure because there's a definition of control measure in the work health and safety regulations does the definition of control measure actually include something like a vaccine um and my answer to those two questions is no. I don't think that if you interpret the law the way it was intended, that um, it was actually lawful for employers to mandate medical procedures or that a vaccine could be considered to be a control measure or that an employer could ever be in a position to say that a vaccine is a reasonably practicable measure to mitigate a risk, which is what they have to say in order to justify it legally. Because the case law says that in order for a medical procedure, sorry, in order for a control measure against a risk to be reasonably practicable, the employer has to have a sufficient state of knowledge to deem that it's actually going to have a meaningful impact on the risk they're trying to address. And most employers don't have any knowledge about medicine or epidemiology or virology, so they could never deem it to be reasonably practicable. They can't make that assessment. They're not in the position to make it. Um, but the federal court has never answered any of those questions. They just said, um, nope, well, in my ones, they were like, go back to the Fair Work Commission for some reason. And um, in other cases, uh, there were there's just weird reasons were given. And some of my cases got adjourned for a very long time, like 18 months. And then, um, you know, people only have so much um, um, energy to keep fighting something. And mm if you're up against a government department or you're up against a huge corporation and they've got a team of 25 lawyers and they keep filing applications just to delay things um you know sometimes they knock you out on that basis as well but the lot the short story is a formal precedent wasn't set by the federal court so the legal questions are still relatively open mm -hmm. but the fair work commission and the industrial relations commission um 
the only difference there is basically that industrial relations commission usually deals with government employers and fair work commission with private employers um they made lots of decisions saying that oh yeah you've got to follow the government advice it's lawful and reasonable for an employer to implement a vaccine direction to their staff um eventually if a situation like this happens again or even if it doesn't the federal court will have to jump in at some stage and make a decision but they were very careful not to and you know we can speculate about why but i think that employment law is actually quite clear in terms of what happened being unlawful and and not compliant with the precedent in that area um but it's just not the way it played out because societal uh, narrative and trend is extremely powerful and judges and um people in the legal system including lawyers and barristers are just as wrapped up in the zeitgeist as everyone else and um um ultimately uh because of the discretion that we were talking about before in the way that these things can be applied um societal trend sometimes wins the day and decisions are made in line with what people may think is right but is actually a distortion of what's right um, such as a one-page piece of advice from a government department that says a provisionally approved drug is safe and effective even in spite of expert evidence from previously world-renowned epidemiologists whose credibility is being questioned just because of the opinion that they have, that the court saying, nope, we're going to take the government advice on judicial notice, meaning we're going to take that on board as truth. We're going to dismiss the expert evidence over here because we don't think they're credible because they don't like the COVID vaccines. And um, it's just the way that it played out, unfortunately. It says something about the legal system, a few things, but... Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the one page summary. As someone who has been a secretary um, to a CEO, um, let me tell you, um, they like, the idea that they sit down with like ten to fifteen to twenty abstracts from scientific journals it, to consider their decision. No, I would walk in and I would give them that in the morning, which would be the dot points of whatever the issue of the day is. They would spend about two and a half minutes on it. If, if, if the person above them or if such and such in that department over there or in Melbourne, Sydney, if they've agreed to it, just sign it, do it. That That's the, the level of consideration um, that is given to even decisions as serious as this. That one-page summary, that that is a brilliant way to sum up. They, they don't have the time or it doesn't affect them personally. Um, but they're more concerned mostly about profit, assuring their position, trying to ward off all competitors. It's, yeah, to, to put those decisions in the hands of CEOs, is, it was a ridiculous thing to do. The thing that I did write down that was really surprising about those mandates is often the employees were stood down um, or on JobKeeper and they were still expected. So they weren't actually in the workplace, but they were still expected to get um, the jab for when they, they they came back. So I could never in my head figure out the argument for mandating something when, say, for example, you know, most of the flight attendants, they said that they're dealing with large groups of people, the Westpac bank employees, again, large groups of people. But when the mandates were coming in, those people were at home. Um, so it was, it doesn't really quite make sense to me. Um, yeah. I mean, but the one, sorry, go. Well, just quickly, though, even people whose whole job was a work from home job who still got still got mandated. Employees. So there wasn't any um, there often wasn't any kind of rational justification for it. 
it was purely following commands and orders and, and dictats from uh, government departments, or at least perceived, you know, when there's that kind of lack of common sense in a situation, usually it means there's a lot of dogma and a lot of, it's a, it's become an ideology and a belief system rather than anything that is meant to um, serve a particular issue, um, which I think is what we all, all encountered. Anyway, I'll continue. Yeah, I mean, um, I just don't know when we all started to trust politicians. That, yeah, that was the, for me, that was the most extraordinary thing because for whatever reason, I could see through the bullshit and just see um, the fear and the propaganda that was being pumped out to an extraordinary extent. But just before you go, can I just ask one last thing? Um, there is the, the high court class action suit for Australians who have been injured by the vaccines um, that's been brought by Melissa, uh, Dr. Melissa McCann. Um, what what do you have you looked into that case? Are you aware of the case? Do you think that it, it has a chance of being successful? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's in the federal court. It is. Yeah. Sorry, did I say high court? Sorry, yeah, federal court. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No. Um, Melissa McCann is um a a person of great integrity who is trying to advocate as a. I mean, that's what a health. What is a health professional? What is a doctor? Um, you know, I'm talking. I've been talking about the role of a lawyer as being something a bit more broad than what um we tend to perceive of it perceive it as it's the same as a doctor or a healer somebody who is intended to actually assist the human population with ailments that come up from time to time and that's what she's doing in in, in a way in a system that is um causing great harm to her patients and she's like taken up the cudgel and she's like well i'm gonna um try and advocate for my patients in a very meaningful way in general um that that case is a is a good case in the sense that when you have people who have actually been injured it's very difficult for a court not to listen to them and if in a lot of the cases including some of mine so far because they don't have injured people um at the core of the case it becomes a bit more of a technical legal case it's more of the technical legal arguments there's not as much of a human element in it and it makes it easier for the court to rely on interlocutory legal loopholes and things to get out of hearing the evidence whereas it's always it's always been the case that a class action with thousands of seriously injured vac people from the jabs um, has a really good chance of getting to hearing certainly which in many cases hasn't been possible in Australia so I'll definitely encourage anyone who's who's suffering an injury to sign up for her case. And um, I think the pleadings are excellent, really well drafted. The barrister who's involved uh, is a great a great barrister who's involved in some of our cases as well. One of the only great barristers, to be honest, in these issues. We yeah, it's it's tough to find big barristers and lawyers who are um, in it for the right reasons. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a good case. I think it has a good chance of getting to hearing. What will happen at hearing? It's really hard to say, but I wish that case and the people in it the absolute best of luck. And we're we yeah, we'll be talking to Melissa more as things progress. And we do talk, we have spoken about the case and fully support what she's doing. I think it's great. Yeah, that's amazing. Just one quick, sorry, one last quick question before I go. Um, a lot of people were saying that if we had a bill of rights similar to the United States that every, or not everything, but most of what happened during the COVID pandemic would not have occurred. So just to bring it back to the human rights things in closing, is that true if Australia did have a Bill of Rights similar to the US, um, that some of the, the more draconian aspects of the, no, 
No, uh, New Zealand is a case in point. Um, Victoria and Queensland don't have bills of rights, but they have human rights acts where they've enshrined into their domestic legislation um, many of the human rights that are in the treaties and covenants. Victoria was obviously one of the most egregious breaches of human rights throughout the pandemic. So what does that mean? It means that the um, systems and bureaucracies in Australia who are entrusted with uh, protecting, advocating for human rights aren't actually doing that. They have ulterior motives that they are prioritising above the human rights of Australian citizens. What does that mean? We need to stop relying on external systems to enforce and protect the things that are inherent to our humanity. It's this thing about whether human rights are something that exists externally to us or not. The only thing that would have stopped the last three years and the thing that did stop it from being worse is people power. Every individual Australian citizen having the gumption and the courage to stand in their conviction and to say no to things that they don't agree with. And I know it's easier said than done and everybody's in a different situation. I know that a lot of people, like I spoke to a lot of like single mums with like five kids who, if they lost their job, were going to be homeless and stuff. It's not the same for everyone, but there were success stories. Like in WA, they tried to implement a vaccine mandate for uh, nurses and they couldn't because 16% of nurses said, no, we're not doing this. We'd rather quit. And the whole health system would have fallen apart. So they had to pull back on it. Similarly, some of the other um, um, potential pandemics that started to come along sort of disappeared and went out of nowhere when nobody seemed to care about them very much. Um, the, the currency that matters is the currency of what people are willing to believe in and what people are willing to do and not do, not which court or tribunal or politician is going to recognize something that we already have by virtue of our humanity. That's why I define human rights that way. It's human rights, not humans with rights. It can't be, it's not, it's not separate to us. It's part of who we are. Um, and on an individual level, we all just need to be willing to compromise sometimes, but to stand in our conviction and have faith that that's going to lead to a better life for us and for the communities that we live in that's what i would say to that well that's a beautiful way to close it out thank you so much for taking the time today so um where can people contact you how can they find out more about human rights um your practice um are you on the socials yeah yeah we're on um all of the censored social media platforms and some of the uncensored ones so we're on i mean you can go on our website as a probably main place to go www.martsmethod.com.au and we also reach recently launched a sub stack which you mentioned um which you can subscribe to where we're posting uh, um articles about a lot of the stuff that we've just been talking about it's a mix of i mean i kind of walk in two worlds where i'm a registered lawyer a human rights lawyer I was a human rights lawyer before COVID and still practice as a human rights lawyer. But I also see myself as a, as a keeper of law, as somebody whose job is to advocate and defend for the truth. And that's why a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about today is a bit broader than legislation and statutes and cases, because ultimately um, I believe that there is an underlying truth that governs our existence here and the legal system is only one tool in the toolbox in terms of defending and advocating for that truth. And, and our Substack kind of talks about those things. We're on um, Instagram and Facebook and uh, Telegram as well. Um, and you can 
follow us wherever. But if you just want to stay in touch, maybe our website, you can sign up to our newsletter. Oh, excellent. And just to, to be clear, it's it's M-A-A-T, Mats. Yes. There's an S as well? Yes, M-A-A for Apple, T-S, method.com.au. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much. No worries. Enjoy Thanks lunch. Good to talk. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to get something to eat. Yeah. Thanks. See